You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, City Church. My name is Jake Axon. I'm the student director here. And uh, if you're confused or you haven't been here in a few weeks, uh, we are going through a series called Christmas in July, where we are honing in on the gifts that Jesus gives us by coming to the earth. Uh, Last week, we looked at the gift of family. Two weeks ago, we looked at the gift of joy. And this morning, I have the pleasure of looking with you at the gift of life. When I said that, many of you probably think I'm talking about eternal life. That's usually the life we think about. When we hear Jesus came to give us life, we think about eternal life. And absolutely, yes, amen, he did. But I think a, a tendency we have is we focus so much on eternal life that we actually miss the fact that we're living right now. And Jesus actually has a life for us to live now. So tonight, or tonight, this morning, it feels like tonight. Uh, this morning, I want to look uh, with you at what this life that Jesus purchased for us to live actually is. You see, Jesus didn't just die for us to wait around and drag our feet and just suffer through this world until we get to heaven for us to truly start living. No, in fact, Jesus actually died so that we would have life. And that doesn't start when we die. It starts the moment we're born again. So I want to look at what that life is. Jesus has come to bring us life. What does that mean? Would you turn with me to John chapter 10? John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. And what is happening here is Jesus is actually ramping up. He's ramping up to his famous analogy where he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep, right? We're probably familiar with that. But before he gets there, he actually has an I am statement before that one. That's less common for us to know. And this is what he says in verse 7. Truly I tell you, I am the gate For the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. Again, he says, I am the gate. And this part right here is where I want to hone in. If anyone enters by me, or if anyone goes through me, he will be saved and will come in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the gate. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that anyone who enters through him, anyone who goes through him, anyone who has faith in him will be saved. Okay, saved from what? That's a helpful question. They will be saved from death. They will be saved from sin, from the punishment for sin, and they will be saved because death has been defeated. They will be saved to live eternally with God in heaven forever. That's what it means when it says anyone who enters by me will be saved. They will be saved from God's wrath, saved from the power of sin, saved from death to live eternally with Jesus. And then he says this, and they will go in and out and find pasture. I want to point something out. Being saved and finding pasture are not the same thing. In fact, if they were, he wouldn't have specified between the two. He would have used the word or instead of the word and. Here's what I mean. If they were the same, Jesus would have mentioned one of them. Anyone who enters by me will be saved or 
We'll find pasture. That's not what he says. He says, anyone who enters by me will be saved and will find pasture. So if entering by the gates, going through Jesus and being saved means being rescued for eternity from the wrath of God on our sin, saved from death and eternal separation from God by the blood of Jesus, then what is pasture? What is pasture? Or in other words, what is the part of the life of the sheep that takes place after they've entered the gate? That's the question we need to answer this morning. If we want to understand the life that Jesus wants for us to live on this earth, what is pasture for a sheep? Psalm 23 speaks to this. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Say, church, what is pasture for a sheep? I would argue that pasture is the peaceful, protected, restful, free life that comes from being with the shepherd. I'm gonna say that again. It is the peaceful, protected, restful, free life that comes from being with the shepherd. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Answer it in your head. Can a sheep survive without pasture? Yes, a sheep can survive without pasture, but a sheep will never live without pasture. You catching the difference there? A sheep can survive without pasture, but a sheep will never live without pasture. Jesus wants for his people to be saved and find pasture, not just survival on earth until they get to heaven going through all the suffering. There is going to be suffering in the Christian life, absolutely, but Jesus doesn't just want us to wait around on earth until we die and go to heaven. He came so that we would have life. He came so that we would live now. And the word the Bible uses, not my word, is the abundant life. Jesus has come. He is the good shepherd who brings abundant life to the sheep. That means that his sheep don't live like every other sheep because they're, they're a part of the good shepherd's flock. That means that his sheep don't struggle with the same things, don't have the same fears or the same stresses, the same doubts, the same worries. These sheep are meant to live differently because they belong to the good shepherd. Look what he says in verse 10. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Here's my fear. My fear for Christians today is that though they are saved, though they have trusted Christ, though their sins are forgiven, they have not entered pasture. Many of them have trusted Jesus as the good shepherd, savior of their souls, begun following him, and have understood that the suffering and hardship of Christianity in the Bible is, is leading them to think that life is simply just a waiting to die so that we can get to the true living. And here's the thing. Jesus wants us to live now. He wants us to live now. And so many Christians have been made alive but are not living and the life that I'm talking about, the life that Jesus has purchased for his people, I think is one of the greatest gifts Jesus has given us on earth. Now I wanna preface this as hard as I possibly can. This is not 
talking about prosperity or material well-being. Jesus is not saying, I have come so that my sheep will have an easy life. He's not saying, I have come so that my sheep will have wealthy lives or healthy lives or prosperous lives. He says, I have come so that they will have, what's the word? Abundant lives. What is the abundant life. Something we need to remember as we answer this question is that our theology, the answer to what is the abundant life, must work in America and in Africa. A helpful thing to remember for us when we start uh, formulating theology is this. If your theology doesn't work in a third world country, it is not biblical theology. If your theology only works in America, only works in first world countries. It is not biblical theology, which means the abundant life that Jesus has come to bring must be life that crosses all languages, crosses all barriers, crosses all wealth statuses, crosses all types of people. So what is this abundant life that Jesus has come to give us? I can answer it in one word. Freedom. Jesus Christ has come to give us a life of freedom. Turn with me to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five, I want you to see for yourself in your own Bible. Galatians five, verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. There are a thousand theologically correct answers to the question, why has God set you free? Let's think of a few of them. Why has God set you free? He set you free because he loves you. He set us free because it was his will. He set us free because it was glorifying to him. He set us free because, you, you name it, God sets us free. There's a, a, a bunch of right answers and Equally as glorious, equally as biblical of an answer as all of those, why has Christ set you free? For freedom. Christ has set you free for freedom's sake. Now, logically, we need to ask, freedom from what? What has Christ set us free from? What I think is awesome is the context of John chapter 10 and Galatians 5 are both talking about the same thing. What are we set free from? We have been set free as Christians from the Old Testament law. And you might think, what does that have to do with me right now? I'm going to explain that. The Old Testament law. Why did people need freedom from the law? I'm going to give you a quick Old Testament law overview. What the Old Testament law was. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he makes them a nation, okay, and he gives them 600 laws, and the reason he gives it to them is to help set them apart, to show that they are God's people. Everyone else doesn't live like this, they live like this. But here's the caveat, okay? If you break one of the laws, you are guilty of breaking all of them. And the standard to be saved is to fulfill the law perfectly. Starting to see the issue here with the law? So sin has crept in to make us realize the law now only exists to show us how much we don't measure up. The law simply exists to show us how sinful we are. This is the law. And so what has happened? Why do we need freedom from this? This is why. 
Because sin working through the law has produced in man a works-based salvation system. A works-based salvation system in which mankind tries now to earn God's love. We try to earn the love of God through rigorous obedience and trying to do good. And on the front end, it sounds like a good idea. That, that is kind of the way the world works. You think about a job. You want a promotion? You want a raise? You're going to work really hard. You're going to try to do a really good job so that the superior over you sees it and rewards you for it. That sounds like that would be how God works. I, I get it, right? Here's the problem, okay? We are all sinners. We're all sinners. And I think when we try to measure up, before God and earn his love, I think what it's showing is we have a fundamentally flawed understanding of sin. So let me explain a little more. We are so broken by sin that it does not matter how good we are. It does not matter how nice we are. It does not matter where our heart is. It doesn't matter how hard we try. I say this to explain this to our students all the time. And it's this, you could take every good work that has ever been done, okay? Every good work that's ever been done. Think of the, the greatest person, you're probably your grandma. Think of your grandma, just she's a saint. Bless her heart. Like take her good works. Take her grandma's good works. Put them all together. Put them in a big pile and bring it before God and say, God, what do you think of our good works? It would not be enough to save even one person. That is how serious our sin is. We cannot, no matter how hard we try, make right the wrongs we have committed by sinning. And this is what John 10 and Galatians 5 are getting at, okay? The analogy of the gate and the good shepherd comes at a time for God's people where Jesus is calling them out of Judaism. He's bringing the sheep out of that fold into his own flock, okay? That's what's going on here. Jesus has come to free his people from the weight of the Old Testament law that hangs over their heads in a way where they realize, if I do not fulfill this law, if I don't live it perfectly, I'm gonna die. And I'm gonna be separated from God forever. And it's with these realities paired that we come to the issue of the law. Because on one hand, we have the law being used as a way for people to try to get saved by measuring up. And on the other hand, we have the, the reality in our hearts that we never will measure up. So we're trying to measure up to be saved, but we know that we never will. It's a recipe for disaster. And what happens is this. Israel is enslaved every day in their own conscience to the never-ending, never-ceasing weight that they have to please God. They have to appease God. They have to earn his love. Yet in the back of their minds, they know the whole time all of it is pointless because they can never be perfect. And the danger that I see is that as Christians who've had our sins forgiven and been saved by Jesus, we accidentally fall into the same way of thinking. We've been saved by Christ. He's called us to himself. He's died in our place. And yet we think, I need to do all of these things to make him love me. Never being sure if it will be enough. How could someone live like this? I mean, at the bedrock of that belief, it's you never have assurance if you've done enough. You lay down in bed at night and you don't know. 
You never have certainty that you'll be loved. You never have a guarantee that you actually belong to him. This is the law that Paul describes as a yoke of slavery. A yoke would have been something you put on an oxen when they, when they pull like a piece of farming equipment. There's a yoke on you. That's a yoke of slavery when we live according to the law for salvation. He calls it the law of sin and death. City Church, this is the way that everyone in the world apart from Christ lives under the constant weight of condemnation while they continually look up wondering, have they done enough? I mean, that is a grueling and exhausting, horrible way to live. And that reality is what makes the gospel that much sweeter. Because where we could not measure up, Christ measures up in our place. What does that do for us? The weight of I can't do it is lifted because someone did it. Someone did it for me and extended his hand and says, if you trust in me, you won't have to measure up. You can take my credit. That's the gospel. Let's look at Romans 8. We're going to see it explained in uh, Paul's words here, better than my words. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Such a stark contrast to what the law would teach. There is only condemnation for those under the law. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That means it doesn't matter how well you live or how well you lived. It doesn't matter how well you followed the law or how perfect you were or weren't. There is now a way to be saved apart from the law, and it's through Christ Verse 2 gives us a look into how he did it. This is what it says. How? Because the law, and look at the language here, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I love this right here. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, helpful reminder, what could the law not do? Save us. What the law couldn't do, weakened by the flesh, God did. How did he do it? He condemned sin in the flesh. Quiz time. Whose sin is he condemning? Ours. Whose flesh is he condemning our sin in? Not ours. God condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering an order that the law's requirement, which would be those who break it deserve to die, would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Meaning for those of us who do not live trying to measure up in the flesh, but are trusting in Christ by the spirit. The gift of life based on Romans 8 is this. Christ has come to give abundant life by laying down his own life so that we can truly live in freedom. Do you know what that means now for us? It means you're free from the unceasing weight of measuring up. You don't live now as a slave to an unpleasable master. You live as a child adopted by a king. A slave lives in service to the master in aim to please them, whatever they can do. A son lives in the love of their father and serves out of 
that love. We don't have to measure up anymore. We don't have to live a life to try to be accepted. City Church, we live a life from being accepted. And this is what God wants for you. I have no shame in saying that. God wants this for you. You may hear this and go, well, that's, that sounds great. I really sure would love that. Well, great. God thinks the same thing. He wants you to have this. He died so that he could bring you in through the gate to be saved and then find pasture. He isn't wanting you to wonder if, if he loves you or not. I have a question. How many of you are parents in the room? Raise your hand if you're a parent in this room. Okay, yeah, so let me ask you a question. How many of you want your kids going to bed at night wondering if you love them? Hopefully no one, right? Nobody wants that. God doesn't want his children sitting up at night wondering, have I done enough? Am I enough? Does he love me? God sent his son to die and rise so that we could have the relief the freedom, the life to live where we know it's no longer about if I'm good enough because Christ was good enough. So this is a promise for you. If you are trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord and have turned from your sins, you can 100% guarantee bank all of your life, all of God's wrath on your sin has been satisfied in Jesus. It has been satisfied. And it's in this truth of Christ that you can rest and know that God loves you. But here's the most, I think, amazing part. God doesn't only love you, he likes you as well. For me, I feel like whenever I really struggle with sin, I'm sitting there like God is probably in heaven like, what? What was I thinking saving this guy? What was I thinking? Like we probably feel like God is just, up there just like, man, can this guy like just get it together? Like, what was I doing? Maybe I made a mistake. Like, I want you to know, God knew what he was getting himself into when he went to the cross. He knew your sin. He knew your life. He knew what you were going to do, and he went anyways. That should be encouraging for us because God's love is not based on how good we do. It's based on how good he is. That's our God. That makes me want to worship. That makes me want to follow him. That makes me want to love him and do nothing but seek his face every day. And what happens is this, when we live in a way where we try to measure up, even after we've trusted in Christ, we have this tendency to dive back into lawful justification. And when we as Christians fall back into this trying to save ourselves or earn God's approval by good works, what we are communicating, though we're not saying it out loud, what we are preaching is this, what Jesus did wasn't good enough. That's what we're saying. We're saying what Jesus did wasn't good enough. And when we do this, we miss out on the free gift of life that Jesus offers us, the living in a way where we're not burdened by the yoke of slavery of the law to be good enough. And when we understand this, when we understand, and this is, I say this all the time, we say so many things, we know they're true, but I feel like we don't wrestle and, and really meditate on what they mean. So bear with me here for a second. When we really understand our sin, that it's the greatest enemy we could ever face, and that it has been dealt with, 
before we were even born, and that there truly is no condemnation now for you if you are a Christian. There is no condemnation. You will not go to hell. This is the closest thing to hell you are ever going to experience, okay? You have life in Christ. When we truly understand that, it makes it to where we can live life through a different lens, Other things become weightless when we understand the weight of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Because I know that God loves me and has justified me not on the basis of my good deeds, I can run to a different place to find rest than the rest of the world. I have a pasture given to me by my Savior, meaning as a Christian, my peace and my security and my hope in this life are not based on things like how successful my career is or how much money I make or how big my house is. These are worldly things that will fade. My pasture isn't found in worldly things. It's found in Christ, and nothing can take that from me. My peace, my joy, my hope, my security come from Christ. And that means this, no matter what my life looks like, whether poor or wealthy, sick or healthy, single or married, incredibly spiritually disciplined or hanging on to Jesus by a thread, he has me. He has me, which means that I am free from the weight of measuring up. That just makes you want to take a deep breath. I'm free. I don't have to do it. Jesus did it. Praise Jesus. That's the freedom. That's the life that Jesus has brought for us to live. I'm free from the law's demands on my soul. And so my fear, I'll reiterate it again, is that far too many Christians have died to sin, been saved by Jesus. They are alive but aren't living. They have been made new but haven't shifted their hopes onto Christ. And so something that we need to fight to convince ourselves of is this. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he meant it. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. He didn't say, I started it, you need to finish it. He didn't say, I'll cover some of it, but you better pull your weight. He said, it is finished. All of it is finished. All of it is gone. All of your sin is on him. And if we try to say, no, let me carry some, let me carry some, let me carry some, God doesn't want that. And when we do that, we're saying, Jesus, you didn't do enough. Jesus has finished it. You can rest in that. Now, this is going to sound like whiplash, but I promise it's not. I work with students, and this is the way that they reason. They hear this and go, Wow, all my sin is gone. I'm forgiven forever. Now I can do whatever I want. No, no. In fact, keep reading Romans 8. You get to verse 13 and this is what you're gonna see. If you live according to the flesh, meaning intentionally living in sin after you've been saved, you are going to die. Whoa. That means you might actually prove that there actually isn't a Holy Spirit in you if you continue to desire and want sin in a way where you're living in it after you've been saved. You might actually reveal that, that, that you actually don't believe that Christ is Lord, right? But look at this. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, because of what Christ has done, we don't kill sin to earn God's love, but because we have God's love. Sin wants to take your focus off of Christ. 
wants to take your focus and your heart off of Jesus. And since your sin cannot separate you from God anymore, it sure as heck is going to make sure you never live. So that's what sin is going to do. And I think it's obvious, you know that it's no question, the more you find yourself in sin, the less you find God as beautiful. I'm sure all of us have experienced that. The more you find yourself in sin, the less you find the gospel as glorious. In fact, the more you find yourself in sin, the more ashamed you might be to come back to Jesus. That's where Satan wants you. He wants you to feel so ashamed and overwhelmed by your sin that you're like, well, I can't read my Bible now. I can't pray now, right? Who's telling you that? God's not telling you that. We're free. We can come to him with confidence because he has paid our price. Therefore, if you want to live, you'll kill sin. Don't toy with it. Don't mess with it. Don't excuse it. We kill it because this sin wants to rip you out of the peace and life of pasture. So we rid ourselves of sin, not for salvation, because of salvation. The gift of life is the gift of not worrying about what God thinks about you. The gift of life is being assured that you are loved and accepted. The gift of life is living in that. This is the life that Christ has purchased for us here. And all of that, as awesome as that is, the life we live now is nothing in comparison to the one that is coming. When our days of living for Christ on this earth come to an end, and spoiler alert, they will for everyone in this room, it is in that glorious moment, it will feel like we have been living in pitch darkness the first time we see the light of heaven. When our tired and worn bodies groaning from the anticipation of heaven when we're sore from the faithfulness we have been striving after, when our body aches from the sin that we've pried from this flesh to get a closer and clearer glimpse of Jesus, it is then that we will experience the truest and heaviest sense of the gift of life that Jesus came to bring us. And when we stand before eternity, when we stand at the front of this eternal life and we glance backwards at our old life, it will be like comparing a candle to the sun. It will be like comparing a candle to the sun. What is a candle in comparison to the sun? It's nothing. They're not even worth comparing. You would look at a candle next to the sun, you wouldn't even know the candle is lit because of how great the sun is. And that is what it is like when we compare the eternal perfection glory of being with Jesus forever to this frail, flimsy vapor of a life we have now. In fact, we're going to look at eternity and our life behind us is going to look like nothing. This is John's account of what he saw in Revelation 2, starting in verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. City Church, we don't say this because it makes us feel better. We don't say this because it's some vague hope uh, for loved ones we've lost. We say this because this is the reality that Jesus Christ has purchased for his people. There is a day coming. We don't know when. 
when we will experience life the way God intended, where we will be with God once and for all. We will enter the great pasture where there will be no more pain, no more fear, no more doubt, no more stress, no more cancer, no more death, no more war, no more sin. I think this is an aspect of heaven we don't think about enough. Guys, there will be a day when we will never break God's heart again. Think about that. There will be a day when I will never have a sinful thought again. There will be a day when there will be no more jealousy, no more lust, no more murder. We will never grieve the heart of our Father ever again. And after all the years of praying and trusting and killing sin so that we can get a better glimpse of who Jesus is, we're going to see him. Clear as day. We're going to look at him. The one who made us, the one who knows us, the one who gave himself for us, the one who invites us into his family, we're going to see him. And it will all be worth it. So I say all of this to say, do not neglect living here and now, killing sin and seeking Christ because the more you do, the more life here will be like heaven. And do not neglect hoping in and resting in the eternal life to come. I want to close with this encouragement. If you're a Christian in this room, this is your reality. You get to wake up tomorrow with no fear of death. You get to wake up tomorrow with no slavery to sin. You wake up tomorrow with no approval to earn or master to appease, no checklist to fill out. In fact, you wake up completely and fully accepted, loved, and protected because the God of the universe who hung the stars in the sky hung on a cross for you. In fact, this God died the death we deserved, took the wrath we deserved, and we get the life that he deserves. And by living this life in the blood-bought freedom and joy and hope and peace and happiness, by living this life like one set free from the weight of measuring up, by living this life like one made alive from death, guess what we do? We glorify God. And not only that, we point other people to this God. And all the while, we continually get a foretaste of what heaven will be like. This is the gift of Christmas. This is the gift of the abundant life that Jesus has come for us to live now. And this is the gift of the eternal life that we will enter when we die. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious reality that when we couldn't measure up, when we would have failed to measure up, when you should have justly and rightly destroyed us for our sin, you did not destroy us, you did not leave us, you came to us. You put on the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us so that you could fulfill the law and lift the weight of the law off of us. God, let us do the only right thing and run to you and rest in that truth. Let's fall on our knees before you because you are so gracious and so great. God, we thank you for that gift. And I pray that we would begin to live in that gift. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.